Good evening, and uh, thank you for turning up in such huge numbers. Somebody said to me tonight, this is probably the largest alumni gathering we've ever had. So thank you very much. And I, I'm sure it's, it's all up to Alistair, though, really. That's the reason for it. So um, seeing the crowd here, um, it's probably not really necessary for me to say very much about Alistair. But as you know, he's, he's best known for his role as uh, Tony Blair's uh, spokesman, press secretary, and strategist. And, but since then, since he... He left number 10. He's been doing lots of things. How many, how many books he's written? He's written um, 11 books in the past eight years, um, including his very interesting diaries. I think I've got a couple of mentions in those. And uh, um, three novels, uh, Personal Memoir and Depression and the Pursuit of Happiness. And most recently, his book, Winners and How They Succeed, which he'll be talking about tonight. Um, Alice and I have known each other for far too many years. We worked together at the Mirror, and then we worked together in government. I was a civil servant, and he was, a, he was the press secretary. And uh, I have to say, there's things I'd say about Alistair. Charming, he is, he is charming, because even people, who, even people, Tory MPs used to always say that when we worked together on the mirror. Uh, determined, resilient, um, and he's also a man who doesn't do things by half. And what I'd like to say today, he spent most of today actually launching a mental health campaign, and even while he was signing books, for those of you who've ordered them, he was uh, taking interviews and watching his appearances on the News at Six. So can I introduce you to Alistair, a man who doesn't do things by half? Thank you. Right, not only do I not do things by halves, but um, because I've been doing this mental health thing all day, I had planned to go home this afternoon because on my computer at home is the speech that I had written to come and talk to you this evening. And... Here it is. I've written two words now, which I wrote them down there when you said that this has been the biggest alumni gathering. I would love to know what sort of crowd Mick Jagger could pull if he, uh, if he decided to come here. So there we go. You're, you're going to see uh, somebody make a speech based upon the fact that he jotted down a few thoughts yesterday and they're now sitting on his computer at home. Uh, I look in front of me. And it says, LEC Media Alumni Group, Alistair Campbell, winners and how they succeed. So I'm going to start there. Then it says, hashtag LSE Campbell. I suspect that is an exhortation which the chair should have mentioned, that if you wish to tweet about this event, please do add the hashtag LSE Campbell with a P. Um, so where I'm going to start, you mentioned I've written 11 books, and one of the most enjoyable things about my post-Downing Street life, it's quite odd really, that I, I still feel that it defines me in many ways, which I guess is inevitable, but it's actually 12 years since I left. That's quite a long time. And why do... I always wanted to write books when I was a journalist, but then when I was working in, in politics and in government, I never thought I would because I was busy and I was kind of 24-7 and I never stopped and, and so forth. And then when I left, I went through, I mean, as most of you may remember, I left at a very, very difficult time for the government and for me personally. Uh, it's fair to say that, again, the theme of mental health, which I suspect will come up a lot today, partly because it's been in my head all day, but I actually went into a pretty, one of the worst depressions I've ever had. Um, and then started to try to put a new life together. 
Um, and that's quite a hard thing to do because Sherry will remember me from when I was a journalist. If you just said to me back then, one day you won't have a job, but you won't care, you won't have a job and you would run a mile if anybody offered you a job, I'd have said that was impossible. I was a complete job person. I went into journalism. That's what I loved doing. I was just actually talking to the guy who's doing this guy over here who writes a blog for the LSE, Alumni Group Communications, you lot, I guess. And I was saying about, you know, we were talking about the difference between PR and journalism. And I, was the, 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 I don't know if Sherry, Sherry feels the same about this, but I, the thing I loved about being a journalist was the right that it gives you to go up to anybody and just start talking to them. It's actually an extraordinary thing. You can go up, and I could go up to you and say, I'm doing a piece about men who wear jumpers that don't quite match their ties. Um, and I could sort of, and you'd smile, as you've just done, and then I could take a picture, and, and I could, I, you can go up to talk about anybody. I can go up to, you, you think it does match? Well, we can, we can have a vote on that later, and we can, we can, we can tweet about it. Um, there are some people in the room who are wearing poppies. There are other, some people in the room who are not wearing poppies. We could, I could go up to any of you and say, I'm writing a piece about when you should start wearing a poppy. That, that's an incredible privilege. Now, then you get into the serious stuff. Journalism is what gives you the right to go to places which other people don't go. So that was my job. I loved being a journalist. And then when I was working for... Tony Blair, first in opposition and then in government, that was full-on. Anybody who's looked at my diaries will know that was a full-on existence. Didn't have days off, didn't really have holidays. If I did have holidays, I wasn't really there. And so now I leave and I'm... My, my daughter, Grace, is now <clears throat> 21, but she thinks she was still at primary school 12 years ago. And there's a very funny illustration of, of this kind of new life after I left when David Blunkett came round for dinner. And David Blunkett, as you all know, he owns the... We now allow dogs in the house because we finally have a dog. <clears throat> but actually, at this period, his was the only dog that we allowed in the house because it was a guide dog. And so he came in, he sat down, and I had to go out and take a call. And I heard this conversation between Grace, my daughter, and David Blunkett. And David said to her, is it nice having your dad home more? And she said, yeah, yeah, it is. He said, uh, what, what does he do? What does he do all day? She said, well, I don't really know, but when I go to school in the morning, he's sitting where you're sitting on that sofa, and when I come home at night, he's lying down on it. <laughs> so that was my life for quite a period. But then you do have to sort of, the, you have to wake up and think, right, what am I going to do? And as Sherry said, I've written, I have written 11 books, six are diaries, three novels, I never thought I'd write novels, and then a personal memoir about, about depression and happiness. And this book, that one, the winner's book, uh, I think it's been kind of brewing all my life uh, for all sorts of reasons. It's been, it was very interesting during the whole Corbyn election period where I was, fair to say, not a supporter. Uh, I didn't get too involved, but I did, do, I did write a blog saying I thought it should be anyone but Corbyn. And, yeah, I did. I haven't said much since he was elected. But, and the thing is that 
When I boil down all the kind of angry tweets, we live in a really angry tweet world. I try to do unangry tweets. But all these angry tweets came in. And when you boil down, what were they angry about? They basically said, you're just obsessed with winning. And I plead guilty to that. I am obsessed with winning. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that I don't have principles. I don't like this idea that you can either have principles and then it's good to lose, or you can be <clears throat> obsessed with winning, but that means you can't have principles. I think that is a false premise. And the other thing, the other reason why I'm obsessed about winning, partly because, I mean, I grew up in Yorkshire. Uh, I was born in Yorkshire to Scottish parents, and I had, I say in the introduction to the book, I had a very, very simple set of ambitions when I was a child. I wanted to play football for Burnley and Scotland. I wanted to play cricket for Yorkshire and England, and I wanted to play rugby league for Keithley and Great Britain. I thought they were fair, six fairly simple objectives in life. Alas, none of them have I met. And I probably have been taking it out on journalism and politics ever since. But sport does shape a lot of the way that I think about things. And one of the most interesting journeys that I've been on in relation to this book is actually, I started off thinking I was going to write a book about how to win political campaigns. I guess at the time, when I was starting to write it, last Christmas before the election, I was starting to think the Labour Party was slightly losing that winning mindset and that approach that I think you need to win. But also, I think there's a danger that as a country, you can go through periods where a country can be focused on winning and then actually become a little less focused. And the thing about winning, it's not just about scores. It's not just about, well, he got more than her or she got more than him and therefore that's the winner. It's about the goals that you set yourselves and then how do you meet them. And that does apply to countries, and it does apply to individuals. But the thing about sport is that I think that having started writing out, started out writing about political campaigns, how to win political campaigns, and then looking a bit more at business and businesses that do well, and how do they do that, and what can other people learn from that, then it was really looking at sport that I found, if you like, the most winning the winningest winning mindsets and the winningest, that's a word I just made up by the way, uh, the winningest winning teams. And that may sound really obvious. You might think, well, it's obvious you're going to get the most winning teams in sport. But why is that obvious? And one of the things now that I say to people in politics is why do we take it for granted that political teams have to fall out. If I look back at the whole new Labour period, 94, Tony Blair becomes leader. 97, three years later, we win by a landslide. 2001, four years later, we have another three-figure majority. Four years after that, even after the Iraq war, we win again. So we won, with lots of difficulties going on. We didn't fail, in my view, because of policy. I don't believe we failed because the Conservatives came along with a better recipe for success for Britain. I think we failed over teamship. 
we fell out, we fell apart. The project ceased to have the energy that you need to keep renewing and winning. Now, can somebody pass me the book, by the way? Do you mind? Because I'd, I'd, I'd like to have to, 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 to look at it. Um, it's not, this, is, this is not a narcissistic thing. It's just that I just wanted to check something. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a slight problem at the moment. If you look at the print on the book, which is number one with all the names of all the people in the book inside the number one, the biggest print belongs to a gentleman by the name of Jose Mourinho. Now, Jose Mourinho is a winner in anybody's book. He has won in four different countries. But he's going through a really, really bad patch. I mean, even people who don't care about football. Is there anybody here who didn't know that Jose Mourinho was going through a bit of a bad patch? I'm going to wind back a bit. Is it, oh, you don't. Do you know who he is? You know who he is. Good, you know who he is. Well, he's going through a very, very, very bad patch. They've lost more games this season already than they did in the whole of the last season. And the thing is that if I look at him now, and we had a... Just, just to tell you how I structured the book, I, I have this thing called the, the whole, what I call the Holy Trinity. I'm allowed to say this because I don't do God. I say in the book, strategy is God. Okay? Now, I know that can be offensive to believers, and I've spotted one there. But to me, strategy is the single most important thing that you need in anything you're involved in to win. Strategy, teamship, and leadership. Those three things together. Now, you could go leadership, strategy, and teamship. You could go teamship, leadership, and strategy. To me, it doesn't matter because you have to have all three. So I write about those three in general terms and then apply some of the stuff that I know from campaigns and interviews and, and so forth. And then I do an individual profile to illustrate. This is the first six chapters of the book. My strategist is Jose Mourinho because he and I have an argument about strategy, what strategy means. My leader, by the way, is Anna Winter. I thought I'd end up with a politician, but actually I found, when I, and I thought she would be my innovator, because I go on later in the book, I've got innovation. But actually, I'm not sure she is an innovator. She actually said, I couldn't design a dress, I couldn't put on a fashion show, I wouldn't know how to do any of that stuff, but I understand the woman. I understand fashion. And she's become the leader of an industry. And my strategist, I play this game, by the way, where... Apart from my son, who did the book with me, and I, I haven't found anybody who actually knows who every single person on this cover is. And one of the names that catches out a lot of people is Eddie Rama. Yeah, you Albanian? Where are you? You're Serbian. Okay, so you don't like him, do you? You like him better than you used to? Okay, Eddie Rama's the Prime Minister of Albania. The reason he's in there as teamship is because he's the only elected head of government who used to play international sport. So I've interviewed him about what do you take from sport, teamship, into politics and government. The thing about Mourinho, it was really interesting. And, and by the way, later on in the book, there's a lot about resilience. And there's a lot about how you use failure and how failure is often the biggest driver of success, how setback is often the biggest driver of progress. So that is why... This patch that Mourinho is going through is so interesting because he's never really had anything like this before. And whether he gets through it, I'm going to make a bet, by the way, he will win the Champions League 
within five years with a different club. That's my bet. That's my bet. Uh, based on my understanding and assessment of him as a character and as a personality. Probably won't be Chelsea. Probably won't be Chelsea. But resilience and how you take failure and defeat. There's only one person in this book, Floyd Mayweather. Have you heard of Floyd Mayweather? You don't like sport, do you? Okay. Did you come tonight hoping that it'd just be about politics? Okay. Floyd Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather is a boxer. And he has had 49 professional fights and he has lost none of them. And he's the richest athlete of all time. Okay? He is the only person in this book who's never lost. Now, he's lost in life. He's been in prison. But he's never lost the things that he set out to win in his chosen profession. I have this mantra, OST, set the objective, then work out the strategy and only then go tactical. His objective was to be a world title fight winning boxer. That's a pretty noble objective for a boxer. He then had a bigger objective. His objective was to become the richest athlete of all time. Now, that doesn't strike me as the most noble objective, unless you're then going to go on to be Bill Gates and try and find a cure for AIDS or whatever it might be. But it is still a pretty bold objective. So I think you have to at least respect him for what he's done in that. My point is, he, I asked him whether fear of failure, fear of losing, was a big driver for him. And he said, I never, ever think about losing. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if that's true or not. If it is true, he is a very, very exceptional figure. Because nearly everybody else is driven by fear of failure that what makes them do the things they need to do to become winners is actually often a fear of failure. If I, when I do occasionally, when I can't sleep and I'm sort of, you know, my thing, oh, I'm thinking about something, I'm writing something, I look up something that I'm trying to check and I look at my diaries and, and I look at it. And I now realise that a lot of the best things that I did in terms of work, in terms of creativity, in terms of productivity, in terms of energy... They came when I was scared. They came when I had a real fear that we were going to lose. And I think that's an important motor for success. There's a wonderful quote, one of my favourite quotes in the book. Actually, I didn't, I didn't interview this guy. It's from a different, some of you may have read a book called The Goldmine Effect. And it's an Irish missionary who went to Kenya and by an extraordinary set of circumstances, he became the coach to the Kenyan athletics team. And he still is a coach to the Kenyan athletics team. And Kenya, Ethiopia, toss up as to which is the best ever in terms of long distance running, but they're pretty good. And he said the, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. The winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. And I just think that is such an important lesson for all of us. And so, Mayweather apart, I think everybody in here actually is driven by that fear, real visceral fear of failure. Dave Brailsford, cycling. So there's a guy. I'm a great believer in boldness. If you're going to be really successful, 
my, my profile on boldness is Richard Branson. There's a guy who, I mean, he's into space now, right? So he starts off with record stores, then he goes into other stuff, then he goes into aeroplanes, and now he does hotels and cruises and medicine and media and all this stuff, and now he's going into space. And he's got so much reputational capital in the bank that even when his test flight goes horribly wrong and somebody dies, people don't think, oh, well, that's the end of Branson. They think, that's a setback, that's difficult, that's a problem. But they know he's going to carry on doing it. So he's bold. He's bold. And I think this, this notion of, of setting your big, bold objectives is part of what being a winner is about. So Dave Brailsford... Britain has never won the Tour de France. Dave Brailsford has transformed British cycling. We've won more Olympic medals than, it, than any other country, a couple of Olympics. And then he goes out and he's he talking to the media and he says, my next big project, I'm going to win the Tour de France with a British rider, do it clean within five years. He went home that night and he said to his missus, I can't believe what I've done. I cannot believe what I've done. I've said publicly... We're going to win the Tour de France within five years. And she said, we better do it then. <laughs> and he did it years ahead of schedule, and now three Tour de France, won by first Bradley Wiggins and now Chris Froome. That's boldness. But then, it's easy. I could say, I want to fly to the moon. Well, I can't fly to the moon. You've then got to do the hard work. You've got to do the hard work to deliver on your own bold objectives and one of my favourite quotes in the book I'm sorry to keep going back to sport but just to iterate to, to, to iterate the point that so many of the best insights actually came from sports people I actually think it's quite worrying I think it's quite worrying that I interviewed lots of and I've worked with lots of politicians there's lots of politicians I like and admire and there's lots of really really special politicians in the book dead and alive Clinton or Mandela or Lincoln or Churchill or Modi who fought the most amazing innovative campaign in India last year but actually these real kind of insights a lot of the best ones came from, from sport so I'm going to guess you've not heard of Wazim Akram no? hands up who's heard of Wazim Akram one of the best ever fast bowlers Pakistani and I asked all of these people what is it that takes somebody from being very, very good at what they do to being, like, the best? So at the moment, you'd say that of Dan Carter or Richie McCaw, the All Blacks. You'd say it possibly in the political world, you might say it of Angela Merkel at the moment, who to my mind is the most impressive current world leader. You might say, you'd definitely say it in business of a Branson. So what takes people from being very, very good to go that bit further? So I asked everybody that question. They all gave interesting answers, but the most interesting to me was Wazim Akram. He said, it's knowing the difference between wanting to win and will to win. Everybody wants to win, in theory. Will to win is doing the things that you then need to do to give yourself the best possible chance of winning. The other theme that goes through this book, kind of like, you know, the, letter, the words Blackpool on a stick of rock, is sacrifice. Most of these people have had to give things up. Again, 
in sport, it's obvious. You, have to, you can't drink. There's a great quote from an Australian rugby league coach, Jack Gibson, who says, you can't be a dickhead all week and play good on Saturday. Gary Neville, footballer, he went to see his friends when he was about 15 or 16 on a night out and said to them, listen, I'm sorry about this and you're going to think I'm a bit of a wuss and what have you, but I'm not going out with you anymore because I want to be a footballer. And Neville's quite interesting because he actually said, he was honest enough to say he wasn't even the best footballer in his own house because he had a brother who was better. The only way I'm going to make it is actually not to go out. Didn't have a girlfriend until he was 21. That's a sacrifice. And likewise, people who go into do anything that is difficult, you can't do everything. You have to say, I'm not going to do that. Most people in public life, actually, you do, whether we, we, we kid ourselves, if we pretend that we can be great parents and do jobs that are 24 7, nonstop. We kid ourselves. So that's a sacrifice of sorts. And, you know, quite often you pay a price for that. So what do you take out of that? So when I go away, and I, and, and I, I was incredibly lucky with this book, because, mind you, to be fair, somebody did say to me, why don't you do a follow-up? It's called Winners and How They Succeed. Do a follow-up, Losers and How They Fail. Okay? And I just don't think it would be that easy to get interviewees for that one. <laughs> when I phone up, you know, when I get hold of Jose Mourinho or Gary Kasparov or Sebastian Coe or Beckham or Clinton or whatever, and I say, I'm writing a book about winners. And I only want to talk to the very, very, very best at what they do. Do you think we could have lunch? I mean, nine out of ten, it was okay, right? I think when I phone up Eddie the Eagle or whoever it might be and say, I'm doing about losers, it's not so straightforward. However, however, I think the other thing that I, I would take out of these people is, and Branson's a good example on this one, uh, he said, and I guess it's easy for a billionaire to say this, he said, I have never been motivated by the idea that a notion I have might make money. I'm motivated, he said, either by my own frustration or by the idea that I might actually be able to make things change for the better. That sounds kind of fluffy, idealistic, da-da-da, but I actually do believe him. And then if you look at his career, I mentioned the record store business. He loves music. He used to love going to buy music in the old days when you went and it's not a thing. You went out to a record store and you looked at the records and you bought some. And he used to say, when in the days of sort of Menzies and what was it, VH, all those kind of HMV. And you go into these old-fashioned stores, right, and you might, as, you might as well be going into a grocery store, okay? It's just records, but could be baked beans. So he said, why was it so boring when you bought records? So he made Virgin Stores, Virgin record stores. And that was a personal frustration. And his insight was, well, if I feel that, and so many other people love music, there's a market there. So he goes and he creates that market, and then he feeds that market. 
<clears throat> and then, the, getting into the music business itself was because he found this 15-year-old kid who he thought was really, really talented, and he couldn't get a record deal. And he tried to help him get a record deal with one of the established companies. And he couldn't do it. So he thought, sod it, I'll do it myself. And then the flying thing, the airlines, that was partly driven by the fact that he was flying somewhere from, it was actually the Virgin Islands, bizarrely, and from Puerto Rico, and they got bumped off a plane. And he thought, sod that. He hired a private jet, and he sold seats on it to people at the airport who were similarly being bumped. And he broke even. And it was really quite comfortable, because it was a private jet. And the insight was, why is flying normally so crap? And everybody said to him, don't do it. Don't get into airlines. Lots of people have got burnt doing it, but he did it. And he's very, very, very good at it. <clears throat> and likewise, now he's into, into space. And that thing about reputational capital, it's so important. It's so important. I'm going to, ask, I'm going to do a bit of an audience interaction here. Hands up if you think Richard Branson has, on balance, a good reputation. Hands up if you think he hasn't. Hands up if, on balance, you think that Rupert Murdoch has a good reputation. <laughs> Hands up if you think he has a bad reputation. Now just think about that. Just think about that. Because a lot of people, including a lot of people in this book, and certainly including a lot of people in politics, think that it's about getting a good press. There's a man who owns more print and more air than any other individual in the world. And yet when I ask a group of moderately intelligent, reasonably well-informed people about his reputation, it's gone. He's lost it. Why? Just think about it. The answer to me is that the, the values piece is missing. And if that's not there, you lose the reputation. You don't get any currency in the reputational bank. So I don't know if Rupert Murdoch were to go into space and his first test were to crash. I don't think he would come through it in quite the same way as, as Branson did. Um, so it's that sense of it not being about money. Mourinho's another one. He's very, very well off. He's very, very well off. One of the calculations we keep reading about is that if he were to be sacked, that it would cost Abramovich 30 million quid because of the nature of his contract. Now, 30 million quid to Roman Abramovich. I don't know if any of you have read the book Once Upon a Time in Russia, but he is not short of a few bob. However, I don't think that will be foremost in Mourinho's mind. Because ultimately, when you're at the level that he's at, yes, probably very nice having a nice house and being able to use private planes. That's all fine. It's all fine. But is he happy at the moment? No. And he's not going to be happy until he's winning again. And that sense of it always being about the next thing is so important. I will resent, regret, but also I will resent for the rest of my life the fact that each of the three election nights when we won, I didn't enjoy them. I did not enjoy them. And 
I've, from time to time, I see a shrink, try to get my head sort of sorted when it's not in a good shape, and I've talked about this. And I've reached the conclusion, partly having spent so much time with a lot of these people, that it's, um, it's about this thing about, it's always about the next thing. And Brailsford, when they first did first win the tour with Bradley Wiggins, if you talk to any of the people, his team, they are still pissed off with him because he wouldn't allow them to have a celebration. Why wouldn't he let them have a celebration? They've got the Olympics in two weeks. No, you can't have champagne. No, you can't. No, you can't. You can't have a day off the regime. But I think you have to have that. And so I can remember that 1997... Actually, every time I come down Gower Street, I remember it. Because we'd had the win in Sedgefield. We were winning seats in places... I promise you, we were watching... I remember the count at Sedgefield, watching the coverage on the news. We were winning these seats, and there were MPs being elected, Labour MPs, and we didn't know who they were. Because we were winning in places where we hadn't even visited to campaign because they were so far over the list of what we thought was attainable. So it was, it was unreal. And then we get on the plane, Tony does the speech at the camp, we get on a plane, we fly down to, to Stansted, we get driven to Festival Hall, you remember that thing, you know, a new dawn, is it not? People thought we were so good at media manipulation by now, they thought we'd actually timed it for the dawn. We didn't, just happened to be dawn. Got there, and... I just wanted to leave. I just wasn't enjoying it. Now, what's that about? What's that about? I think it's about this impulse to... There's got to be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And again, I think that's a good driver. You know, don't rest on laurels. Now, you might say, well, yeah, at least enjoy it for one night. But no, don't rest on laurels. And again, if I look at... So many of the people in this book, they could have stopped. They could have stopped at any time. Anna Winter, what does she have to prove in the world of women's fashion or magazines? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But there's something in her that drives her. And that thing about holding these things together, strategy, teamship and leadership, it's, it's quite rare for those things to come together. Partly because often leadership, leaders underestimate the extent, the importance of teamship. And again, you learn so much. I can watch a football team, or you can watch the All Blacks, and you can learn from watching what they do. And I used to, I, I did, uh, I write in the book about how one of the, weird, one of the weirdest periods of my life, 2005, I left in 2003. As I said earlier, I went through a bit of a bad patch. And then I started doing different stuff. And I, and I never really... Tony was always kind of on the phone and going in for meetings and what, what have you. I knew I was going to go back to do the 2005 campaign and I knew I didn't want to get sucked back in after that. I just knew in my own mind I wanted to get out again. And, but I didn't really have anything planned. And then one night, um, running on Hampstead Heath... My phone goes, I still run with the phone, I know it's weird, but I do. My phone goes, I answer the phone, it's Clive Woodward, England, 
former England rugby coach, at the time in charge of the British and Irish Lions, on the way to New Zealand. And he says to me, uh, I don't know Clive Woodward at this time. He says, uh, I just I got your number from Tessa Jowell. I wondered if you fancied coming to New Zealand with the Lions. And I said, Clive, I haven't played rugby since I was <laughs> 17. I thought, this is my moment. Because <laughs> it did come around the time that I was playing football with Maradona. Again, which you would, wouldn't you? I've written about in technicolour detail in this book. So the thing was that he said, Clive said, that he wanted me to go and do all the media and the communications and what have you. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Even though, I must, I'll tell you this, this couple of funny stories about that. Um, it's quite weird. It's quite weird being me, right? Because I actually think I'm, I'm all right. I mean, I'm quite a nice bloke, aren't I? Deep down, yeah. But, you know, if you get loads and loads and loads and loads of bad press over a given period, you know, stuff happens. And so one of the reasons I wanted to go on this trip to New Zealand was because I thought it would be nice to go somewhere where nobody knew who I was. Big mistake. New Zealand people follow British politics much more closely than most British people. I get there, my very first interview, Radio New Zealand, microphone under my nose, this guy says, oh, Mr. Campbell, we'll come on to rugby in a moment. First of all, just explain to our listeners, what is it like being an antichrist-type figure? <laughs> so, <clears throat> that was my introduction to New Zealand. But the point about this teamship thing, when I was working with Woodward, and, and, and the Lions. I was doing it, the preparation, at the same time as doing the campaign, 2005 campaign. So I was flitting about between the two. And we did this extraordinary, I've described this as well. There's a guy called Humphrey Walters. Another great thing about winners, find challenging, interesting people who aren't the same as you. Humphrey Walters is not, was not a rugby player, was not a rugby coach. He was a sailor. He used to sail a lot. He was a consultant. And Clive just met him and liked him and brought him in. I'll give you one specific. You know when you see those rugby players now and you see that when they come out in the second half and they look pristine, okay? Well, why back? Go and look at some old videos of old rugby matches, okay? Clive Woodward worked out data I haven't talked about data, but very important, worked out that England, his England, were playing really well in the first ten minutes of the first half, and that was giving them an obvious advantage, okay? They were playing less well in the first ten minutes of the second half, when actually, at that stage, their fitness levels, fatigue, shouldn't be setting in. shouldn't really be that much difference, given they've just had a ten-minute break, fifteen-minute break, whatever it was. And he couldn't work it out. And so they were going ahead in games, and then games are sort of plateauing up to half-time, and in the first ten minutes, they were starting to get clawed back. Couldn't work it out. He gets Humphrey in. He says, Humphrey, I've got this problem. And I, I, I've thought about, every, thought about it from every angle, but I can't work it out. So Humphrey said, well, okay, can I just come to the next match, and I'll just, I'll just watch everything. So he goes to the next match, and sure enough, it happens. They start well. Half-time, they don't do so well. So he goes back in, and he says to Clive, he said, um, 
why don't you give them clean kit at halftime? And it's so obvious. It's so obvious. But do you know what? Not only is it so obvious now that everybody does it, but what they used to do was so obvious that initially the players rebelled. The, 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 the most frustrating words you ever hear, uh, we've never done it like that before. Well, he got a lot of, we've never done it like that before. Another thing, I mean, I know those rugby players have got amazing physiques, but it was a, a, another of Humphrey's things about, you know the thing about the, the utterly skin-tight shirts, right? Well, that was an innovation based upon the fact that if you could grab a whole fistful of shirt, that gave you a bigger opportunity to pull the guy down. If the shirt is utterly skin-tight, you've got to get them around the legs, or you've got to get them around the hips, and you've got to bring them down. So they were ideas that came from outside the sport. And that is another thing which I think politics is uniquely bad at. Actually getting outside and bringing in people who aren't going to give you ministerial capacity. They're not necessarily going to even want to be MPs. A lot of them won't even want to be be known about. But they can give you stuff. So I was at this training thing with the Lions. And Humphrey was there because he's now quite a big part of the scene. And we did this extraordinary thing in a room twice the size of this. 40 rugby players, 15 coaches, all the backroom staff, everybody there. And we go into this room and we have to put on police forensic overalls. And we're all, so I, I was with Steve Thompson, the hooker, and he's going, mm, fucking rubbish. We put on these overalls. He then stands up and says, right, I'm now going to give you a series of general knowledge questions. And they were really, really hard. About 100 questions. We were giving them out, pens and papers, giving these questions. And he then said, if you answer these questions correctly, that will qualify you to go over to that corner and pick up some paint brushes and some paints. Okay? These questions were really difficult. <clears throat> so everybody very quickly worked out, I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. So people started forming little groups. He knows about history. Oh, he, know, he knows about politics. Oh, he knows about pop music. So you form little groups. So the team thing starts to sort of percolate up. <clears throat> so eventually, roughly around about the same time, everybody suddenly has got them all right. Everybody rushes over to the corner and gets these paints and paintbrushes. And then you form off into teams, and we're doing this sort of painting by numbers type thing. And we've got, again, and there's quizzes along the way and what have you, and the players are sort of getting into it. But, you know, they're rugby players in the end. They want to be sort of running around beating people up and, <clears throat> you know, and I want to be kind of... I'm thinking, you know, I could be helping Tony Blair get on better with Gordon or, you know, I could be doing all sorts of things better than this. But we carry on. Humphrey then says, right, I want you to go outside. I want you to go and have a cup of tea. I want you to come back in half an hour. We went back in half an hour and the height of that wall, what we had painted was the crest of the British and Irish Lions without knowing it. It was brilliant. And these rugby players just looked at it, utterly gobsmacked. And then he said, I'd like you all to come up, take a picture. So we all got photographed with it. Then we got these giant marker pens and signed it. And it was just, it was, I hate that team bonding phrase, but it was an extraordinary <coughs> team bonding moment. So I went back to Downing Street, 
And I said to the aforementioned Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, I said, I've just done this extraordinary thing with this guy called Humphrey Walters. I think we should do it. And they reacted in exactly the way that you reacted. But why? Why? Teamship. Actually thinking of how you build teams. I think it's a big, big part of what politics does wrong. And partly it's because you know, and I remember Tony saying, oh God, can you imagine the field day the media would have? Right, well yeah, they would, they would. But if it made you a stronger team. Here's an observation. Right, here's an observation. I'm going to, this is my last thing before we take questions. One of the most intelligent things I think that's in this book comes from somebody whose identity I'm going to ask you to guess. Okay? Now, I know some of you read the book, so if it's stuck in your mind, you're not allowed to answer this. This person said, we've gone from a vertical world to a horizontal world. In the vertical world, leaders led. Have you read it? Leaders led. They made decisions. They announced those decisions to their teams or to the people, whatever it might be, and those decisions then percolated through the system and everybody understood it. And that was the old way of working. In the horizontal world, we are bombarded 24 hours of the day every minute of the day with other people's opinions, with other people's views of what you, the leader, should do. That creates massive stress, and people underestimate the extent to which that has changed the nature of leadership. Guesses who said that? Come on. Clinton, yeah? Murdoch? No. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Did you say Blair's not clever enough? No. The answer is Arsene Wenger, manager of Arsenal. But he's spot on. He's spot on. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. How do you deal with that world? And I think you deal with it by ignoring it. He thinks that as well. Now, what is the word most commonly associated with Arsene Wenger? Stubborn. People say he's stubborn, right? The thing about that horizontal, vertical v. horizontal world, the insight that I take from that as a former command and control communications person is that command and control is no longer possible in the same way as it used to be. The only things that you can control are what you do and what you say about what you do. And if you focus on what you can do, based upon the idea that you should have a clear objective, understand the difference between strategy and tactics, always be innovating, use data properly, build a team and understand that that is a really fundamental part of leadership, then that is what will give you the best chance, possible chance of winning. If you think it's about getting a good press for what you do, you'll lose. Because it's not important enough. You can only control what you do and what you say about you do, what you do. And that, to me, if I look at all of these people, yeah, lots of them are great communicators, lots of them get a good press, lots of them are good at doing the media. But, you know, there's old David Beckham down there. David Beckham's now kind of 
global sporting icon. I mean, every time I go abroad, I travel a lot. Every airport in the world, there he is, flogging something. And you know what? People don't resent it. That's just David Beckham is what he does. And yet, wind back to a time when he got sent off against Argentina and he was getting death threats and he was getting effigies hung from lampposts, he was getting dog dirt sent through the post. So how did he get through that? Get through it. You get through it by focusing on what you can do and what you say about what you do. He was a footballer, so he, was, he went on being a very good footballer. And he let the other, the other stuff take care of itself. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, I asked him, how did he get through that whole Lewinsky episode? Now, that was pretty sordid stuff, right? Every single media organization in the world, that was the biggest story for weeks. And on the day, on the very day that the Star Report was published, which could have destroyed him, could have destroyed him, he was on the phone to Tony Blair talking about Ireland and Russia. So I said to him afterwards, it's in the book, how did you do that? How did you do that? And I was so happy with this because we always tried to do this objective strategy tactics thing. Objective, win, strategy, modernization, tactics, policy. Pledge cards, speeches, whatever. He said, I had a very simple objective, survival. My strategy, do the job. Get up every day and focus on those things that only I could do because I was the President of the United States and I was the only person in the world who could say that. Tactics, make sure the American people know, knew that's what I was doing. And the reason why I think that's such a powerful story is because there's a guy who I mean the number of people who say to me we've got a crisis on our hands and it's not a crisis it might become a crisis but usually it's not 10 years with Tony Blair, 5 crises Iraq, 9-11, Kosovo foot and mouth, fuel protests millions of bad headlines thousands of difficult situations but full blown crises there are very 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 few so I say to people, they come along, there's this company I saw with Portland, doing some work with Portland recently, and this company came along and said, oh, I've got a really bad crisis. And I said, okay, describe it. And they went through it, and they had these cuttings. It was like a local paper, page 17, and there it was, you know, <laughs> bad company does bad things and is very bad, or whatever. And I said, okay, so there you are. Bill Clinton, when he was having his troubles, you know, with Monica and all that, Scale of 1 to 10, how bad do you think that was? Hmm, 9? Yeah, bad, right? So, and how bad do you think yours is? Hmm, yeah, okay. So if Clinton can get through that, okay, he's a very special sort of person, he's a very special sort of communicator, but he focused on what he could do and what he could say about it, and he got through it, and he's a winner. And if he walked into this room now, he'd say, shut up, Alistair, we're on here, Bill. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, Alistair's happy to take questions for a while before we go for... So, Alistair, do you want me to call or are you happy? Nope, I'm fine, yeah. Yes, sir, at the front. Yeah. 
is, is it not true that in the sense of sense of who losers are, as well as winners? I mean, if you look at British politics, Ian Duncan Smith was a loser, but my man was never going to win an election, was he? Jeremy Corbyn was never going to win an election. And we kind of know it, don't we, already? Can losers ever become winners? Right, next. Um, I don't... hmm. You're right that people make very, very strong instinctive judgments. Um, I think Ed Miliband, for example, I don't think Ed Miliband ever really recovered from the first week. I think the public kind of made the decision quite early on. Now, thereafter, back to strategy... I think some pretty fundamental strategic blunders were made. And this is not hindsight, because I've got a box full of emails and notes saying... So, for example, we conceded this idea that the Labour government caused the crash. The mess we inherited, the mess we inherited, the mess we inherited, and eventually it stuck. So, but I think for all sorts... Where you're you're right is that people... There was was an extraordinary... um, piece of research done in America. I can't remember the numbers, but there was, they actually just took um, about 100 sets of two photographs. And they were the candidate, the winner, and the defeated candidate in a whole series of elections around the United States. Governor, senator, representative. Da, da. I can't remember the exact figure, but they showed these two sets of pictures to a group of people and asked them to pick who won. These elections had already happened. <clears throat> and it was something like 90% that they got right, just looking at a photograph. <clears throat> and a part of you thinks, well, that's ridiculous and absurd. But, one, people do make judgments very, very quickly upon what they see. But secondly, there are qualities that are emanated through the person's being. Um, I was at lunch with somebody yesterday who was giving me all the heights, take out Thatcher, all the heights of male prime ministers since the war. And if you put them all together, they are considerably above average. Now... I, I never get that difference between causality and correlation, okay? So, but so there is something going on there that people look at taller people and think leader. So I think that... How tall is Jeremy Corbyn? He's quite tall. Ed's tall, that's true. Cameron's tall. Corbyn's short, he's not short. Putin, and, Putin is short and so is Hollande. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, Putin is not exactly what you'd call a democratically... Uh, <laughs> Hollande and Sarko are small. But, so I think that, that your question was, can there be somebody who's defined as a loser who then becomes a winner? I mean, up until 10 o'clock on May the 7th, people have thought that process had happened with Ed. Many people did. I can't say I was 100% among them all of the time. Um, but what I would say is I think, people, I think winners do come in all sorts of shapes and sizes that's why people, people have said with this book you know, is the one thing you can say you could apply to them all there are certain characteristics that most of them would touch but actually if you look at, if you look at Angela Merkel who I said that I would think is the most impressive world leader at the moment 
But if you were going to, to, to sort of draw an identikit modern world leader, I don't think it'd look like Angela Merkel. So this is a long-winded way of not answering your question about Jeremy Corbyn. Can I ask you to wait for the um, for Wait the for the wandering mic. In fact, why did the wandering mic choose the questioners? One by one. So you choose the next one, and then you choose the next one. That lady at the back. There, behind you. Yeah, and then so if you, while that microphone's in use, that one, yeah, yeah, you get my drift. Um, yeah, just coming back to this, whether there's one common trait. I don't know if this is on. Hello? Yeah, uh, just yeah. coming back to whether there is one common trait that sort of is shared by all these great leaders. Um, you, did, you mentioned, or you spoke a lot about principles, but I read something about trust, as a, trust as, a, as, as an essential uh, characteristic that, that great leaders need to succeed. Uh, yeah, I think that Putin came into my head again. Um, it's I, think, my I, think, I think politics is also different because your fate is not, it's decided by other people, it's decided democratically, whereas in the private sector, for example, you, you can get appointed and people can pull you up. But. Yeah, that, I do, I certainly think that in, in, in you see, people, people would say, if you look at recent elections, uh, the three that we won, I do think strategy was the most important thing. Uh, I don't ultimately think it's about media. I really don't. Uh, because people, somebody mentioned Murdoch earlier. The, they didn't back us, and that led us to win. They backed us because they knew we were going to win. Um, and that's where the chicken and egg, where my chicken and egg lie, lay. Whereas I think what the media like to think is that they can sort of influence and set the terms of the outcome. So my point is if the strategy is strong and you trust people to make the right judgment, and if I go through every election, I could go through every election since the war and I can definitely understand why every single decision that the British people made was made. Including the one that does my head in really. I mean Churchill's in the book is probably defined as the greatest British Prime Minister. And yet what happened after he won the war? got booted out because the public made a different judgment about what they needed then and they were probably right and they were probably right so there's a great leader who in those circumstances is rejected because the people decide that's not the leadership they need at that time so now he had trust I think in business this goes back to my Branson Murdoch thing and the banks would be the best example of this. I think in any walk of life, if you lose trust, it's very, very, very hard to get it back. It doesn't mean that if you fail, Beckham, it doesn't mean you can't regain your reputation. But I think that one of the... I mean, the, the bank that I focused on in this bank, in the book, is, is Metro Bank, first bank in a century. They were born out of a really good analysis of other banks' failures. So they basically tapped into the fact that other banks had lost trust. So I agree with you, but I think, I think trust is a, it's, it's a whole different, it's a whole new book that it's such a complicated issue. It's not as simple as people think. That's probably why you asked it. Hi. Um, this gentleman at the front asked, can, 
can people who look like winners sort of end up being losers? And I'm asking the opposite. Do people who look like winners, can they become losers? No, he, he asked, you, you actually, he asked losers to winners. You're asking winners, winners to losers. Winners to losers. So I yeah. think for me, is it down to like reputational capital was the phrase I think you used? Somebody like, let's say, look at Lance Armstrong, who was yeah. the world's biggest winner in everything and now not, not so much anymore. Mm. Well, it's funny. There are three people who are in the book but not on the cover. One is Vladimir. You have to say he's a winner. In, if you see politics and government as being about the pursuit of power and your agenda, and now he may come a cropper, but I've been hearing that for a long time. Um, but I thought, particularly as the book's just come out in America, it might be misunderstood if I put him on the cover. Uh, the, second, the second is Lance, and I'll come on to that, and the third is the Queen. The American edition has got the Queen on the cover, to my annoyance, because it says in the, edition, in the, in the introduction she's not on the cover. Armstrong, Armstrong is fascinating for all sorts of reasons. Um, I, was, I was lucky. One of the first things I did when I finally got off the sofa in 2003... I did a series for the Times about great sportsmen. And my, my number one target for an interview was Lance. And I, I went to see Lance in, in uh, Spain. And he said the most extraordinary thing. Okay? I said to him, back to fear. I said, when you were, had cancer, were you scared you would die? He said, yeah. I said, you're coming up to your fifth tour, the fifth win. And you're up against Jan Ulrich, the German. That was his biggest rival at the time. Are you scared you're going to lose? He said, yeah. I said, which of those two is greater? The fear you might die from cancer or the fear you might lose this bike race? And he said, losing and dying, it's the same thing. Now, I thought, wow, this guy is a winner. I should have thought, if I'd still been a proper journalist, which I never really was anyway, was I? If I'd still been a proper journalist, I should have thought, this guy's a cheat. If you really think that, if you really, really, really think that losing a bike race is the same as dying, you're going to do anything, right? But I didn't. And actually, I, got t I, I totally believed him. Now... There's still a part of me that wanted him to put him on the cover. Because I've been on Mont Ventoux watching him ride a bike. And it is incredible. And part of you thinks, I don't care if you cheat. I don't care if you interest. That is incredible. I've ridden up Mont Ventoux. In my best time is two hours ten. He does it in an hour. Right? That's fast. So, anyway, Gebra Selassie... Do you know who Gabriel Selassie is? I'm asking the lady who didn't know Mourinho. You knew, you knew Lance, right. <laughs> Highly Gabriel Selassie is my last interview in the book because he's been a great runner. He's one of Ethiopia's most successful businessmen and he's now going to politics. So he's doing the whole three. So I said to him, I said, whatever you think though, Armstrong is a winner if you think about the mindset He's got a winning mindset. And he said, yeah, he's won a lot, but he's a big loser.
and I think that is the judgment. But others who've gone, um, Jimmy Savile. Jimmy Savile was seen as a winner. Does anybody think that now? No. So lots of people go, winner's a loser. In fact, I think most do. You think about Enoch Powell's quote about politics. All politics ends in failure. Now, there is, you know, Churchill we've mentioned, uh, there Abraham Lincoln in America. There are some who get above it. Mandela probably will. But most politicians, you know. So I think most go from winning to losing. And the, those that stay, they work at it. They work at it. Are we allowed questions at the top? I feel we should, yeah. It would be furthest away from the microphone. Yeah. Hello. Um, I was just very interested in, in looking at changing reputations. Um, one of the people you didn't mention in politics was Tony Blair. Um, is he in your book? And given the change of reputation that could be argued, is he still a winner? He's in the book and he's on the cover next to Billy Bean. <laughs> Billy Bean? Anybody? Baseball, Moneyball, Moneyball. Listen, if you've had Brad, Brad Pitt play you in a movie, you're a winner, okay? <clears throat> no, he, isn't, he is on the cover. Um, he probably wishes he was a bit bigger. <clears throat> but I think the biggest political name oh, is Mandela and Merkel. Yeah, Mandela and Merkel are the two biggest names. And Modi's big because of his campaign, which was amazing. Um, Tony is a winner. And the repu the, but the reputation thing is interesting. There's a guy who left office in 2007 to a standing ovation in the House of Commons from all his peers, which never happened before. Um, now, to my mind, it cannot just be about Iraq, because Iraq had happened. Now, okay, the aftermath had not played out as fully and as badly as it has, but that had already happened. And it can't just be about the fact that he's gone off and he now has made lots of money. So there's something deeper. There's something deeper. <clears throat> and I think, this is my back to the thing about winners. I said this in America. I was in America two weeks ago when the book came out there. I think America celebrates American winners and success stories in a way that we actually like to bring them down. I think there's something in that. Um, I also think, just to give a bit more context, when Tony left office, you know how Thatcher became a problem, uh, became a, you know, Heath and Thatcher sort of made life difficult, and, you know, when John Major was Prime Minister, Thatcher, backseat driver and all that stuff. Tony was absolutely determined not to do that. So when he left office, he just left. Now, that was the right thing to do to let Gordon Brown get on with it. But what it meant was that I think for the first three years of his post-prime ministerial life, he was allowing himself to be defined by others. So I could sit down with you for half an hour and I could talk you through all the different things that Tony Blair does around the world. Most of them you'll never have heard of because it's stuff that he's, say, doing in different parts of the poorest parts of Africa for nothing. But you never hear about it. If he went there and made a speech and got paid $250,000 and was flown on a private jet, you'd hear about it. Because the papers... 
And I think there's something about our, our media here that I think this, and I, get, I cop this a bit as well, although to be fair, they've been good on the mental health stuff, I'll give them that. But I think there's something about them feeling they tried really, really hard to destroy us, and they never succeeded. And they kind of don't like that. And some of them, Paul Dacre at the Mail is still driven by that same desire to destroy us as when he was there. It's sad, but it's true. So I think if you put all that together, it sort of part explains it. But I'll tell you the other thing I get a lot of. The one thing you must never do, never confuse media opinion with real public opinion. I get a lot of people who come up to me and say, I hate Tony Blair. I get an awful lot of people also come up to me and say, I can't stand the way the press treat Tony Blair. I get other people who say, God, I wish Tony Blair was still around. It's complicated. But he's in the book. <laughs> and he's on the cover. And in the American edition, they put him in bigger print. Uh, uh, microphone? Monitor? Hi, you, you mentioned at the big... Sorry. No, 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 you've got the microphone. Uh, it's like that game. You mentioned at the beginning um, a false dichotomy between a commitment to principles and a commitment to winning. But then you mentioned in the middle uh, how you believed that um, in order to succeed, you have to have an element of unhappiness in order, and, and you need to be driven by the next thing. Do you think that there's a conflict between those two, having those two views? No. No, I don't. I mean, look, I don't think everybody's like that, necessarily. I mean, funny enough, Tony, in a, uh, Tony was... Um, actually, optimism is a kind of big part of him. Whereas I was probably, much, because of the depressive stuff, much more negative and pessimistic about things. Um, but I think... I certainly think that to get the best out of yourself, you do need that, a little bit of fear. If there is no conflict between them, then why are people happy um, when they've won? Is, that, is, it just, is it just the winning? No, I think, I think when people, when they win something really big and important, it's the culmination of a lot of very, very difficult things. And it's the sacrifice and it's the, you know, I know it's, it's annoying when you see the Oscars and you say, I want to thank my mum and I want to thank my dog and my granny and all that stuff. It's annoying but the reason that pours out at that time is because that feels like the culmination. The making of the film wasn't the culmination. They want that recognition and that honour. So it's part of this sort of connectivity. It's back to the team thing. They, want, they, 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 they stand there holding the trophy, but they didn't do it on their own. And I think likewise with... with um, yeah, it's a good question, that. I don't know if I believe what I've just said. <laughs> I think I do. I think I do. But I, th I think you've... you've I, I, I certainly am driven a lot of the time by fear of failure. Um, and that's, that, that includes in things which don't matter. I played in a charity football match the other day at somebody's wedding. I almost got sent off. <laughs> now, it's bad. It's bad. But there is a, one of the things I discovered, by the way, in researching this book, there is a medical condition known as maladaptive competitiveness. <laughs> I've got that. 
By the way, I'm not snubbing everybody with their hands up. These people are deciding. So don't try and get my attention. Yeah. Uh, bringing it back to today. Um, in terms of the three things you, you outlined for winning, who do you think is going to win between George Osborne and um, uh, Boris Johnson to the leadership of the Conservative Okay. Uh, I thought you were going to say George Osborne and Jeremy Corbyn. Thanks, you didn't. Um, uh, if I had to put my life on it now, I'd say Osborne. That is if I apply the principles of winning as per my book. Who's more strategic? Osborne, I would say. Uh, who's more innovative? Osborne, I would say. The team thing, I don't really know enough. I don't know. I think it's impressive, though, that he and Cameron have seemed not to have gone the way of Thatcher Howe, Brown Blair, and all the rest of them. Um, added to which I think Boris Johnson is a complete clown uh, I think I, I, I don't know it depends on the electorate doesn't it see if, if you just said to me a year ago here's a, story, a funny story about Jeremy Corbyn the day after the general election the day after the election the morning after the general election as David Cameron was on his way back to Downing Street I was on the radio in a tent on College Green with Jeremy Corbyn. We were just, you know, people wandering around, we were dragged into a tent. If I'd have said, or if he had have said, then, I think Jeremy's the next leader. I would have been dragged out by the men in white coats. But he won. If, if, if I'd have said it to him that day, he'd have said, excuse me, what earth are you talking about? So I think we are in politics in a kind of anything could happen sort of mode. Donald Trump? Donald Trump's a good example. Donald Trump is a good example. Um, I'll tell you, when I was in America, I bumped into the other guy, Carson. Do not kid yourself that he's much better. Uh, he says some terrifying things. I mean, I was there when he said that thing about, you know, if only the Jews had had... Guns, they wouldn't have had the Holocaust. I mean, so Trump, I find quite scary. I find it quite scary. Um, but we are. You know, if you just said to me, Scotland's another one. When we did the Scotland Act in 1997 or 8, the, the electoral system was designed because we were so powerful in Westminster and in Scotland, was designed to make sure no single party would ever get a majority. Nobody even was thinking about the SNP. That was about us. And here we are now. So, anything goes. Anything goes. Microphone alert. Yep. <coughs> He's um, going to scream at me if he doesn't get a question. Brother. On. Yeah. Um, when and how do you think Rupert Murdoch might lose? I think he lost when I asked that question. Were you here? Yes, yes I was, but... He, you know, it depends what you think. Well, he would probably say, he would probably say, right, his objective, setting it out, was to be a big media mogul with lots of power and lots of influence. Yeah, well, he's got that. Um, and he's very, very wealthy and all that. He's got that. Um, but I think if you're him, I think if you do have most right-thinking 
people thinking that your reputation is very, very bad, that's a big loss, I think. And I don't think Jerry Hall compensates <laughs> sufficiently. Uh, not a bad distraction. Eh? Not a bad distraction. No, no, but not sufficient. I was just pondering what you said earlier. You were drawing a very simple analogy, objective strategy tactics and you were talking about rugby in that instance. Yeah. And you said the objective is to win and politics is like that. But there's a, clearly in politics, take a party at random, let's say the Labour Party, yeah. it wants to win, but there's a dispute, there's a difference about what to do with the victory. Mm-hmm. So it's not win full stop. And no. it might not even be win at any cost. No. But it is not just simply like a rugby match, getting the biggest score, getting the most No, it's not. No, and I do make that point. So, for example, if I look at the last general election, by my definition in the book, the winner of our general election was Nicola Sturgeon. David Cameron became Prime Minister, and he got a majority. So, and likewise, you've got a by-election coming up in Oldham, okay? Um, People set expectations. Some parties will stand... <clears throat> knowing that they cannot win, but they will set the expectations and, and, and a win for them will be, we're going to get this share or we're going to use this base. So if you look at the way that the Greens have developed, you know, win for them last time round, not this time, the time before, was to get a seat in Parliament. They got that. Then they hoped to develop on that. They didn't. UKIP, they won the European elections. They didn't carry that through to a general election. So, so winning... Winning to me is the setting of big, bold objectives which you meet. It's not just to win the majority. Isn't it the big, bold objective to change society? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. But my point is you can't do that. If you're the Tories or Labour, you can't do any of that unless you win. And that's my... You see, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you think that the Labour Party thinks it's really important to win. I'm afraid I think a lot of people in the Labour Party at the moment don't think it's that important. I think some of them don't. In fact, I know some of them don't. Uh, one, you know, I, I've had arguments with people who, th- those people who will say to me, you're obsessed with winning, they will say, I would rather lose and have principles. And it's, this, is where, this is what happens, I'm afraid. This is why we've got to be so careful. Once people start to, you know, I, I've got to tell you, some of the stuff on the social media, uh, I mean, the Nats were bad enough. But honestly, some of the, de- the way the debate is now conducted within the Labour Party is just, it's not about winning. It's about who owns and who controls the Labour Party. And that's bad and that's dangerous because, we, you know, we've, we've, we've seen that movie before. Next, up there, yeah. Do you feel that winning is very much about comparisons within others in your society or is it more of an intrinsic motivation within oneself I think it's both of those things I think it's both of those things look I used to my mother alas is no longer with us but she is one of those people and maybe this is you know something that drove me in a way she is one of those people who used to say it's not the winning or losing that's important it's the taking part and from a very early age I thought that was I just, no, she was a very happy person, much happier than me, but I've never, this is me, I've never seen life as being about the pursuit of happiness, necessarily. I've got a section in the book 
about this is about with my mental health campaigning thing on uh, one more then off to network <laughs> why people don't want to network Jerry um, so where was I my mum and what was I saying about my mum when he wasn't disappointed, then I started another thought. Pursuit of happiness, yeah. I just wanted to make sure you're listening. <laughs> I've got a section in here on the extreme mindset. And I actually make the point, this is partly with my mental health campaign a hat on, that if you, if you, right, I mentioned Lincoln, greatest American president, Churchill, greatest British prime minister. Lincoln, major depressive. Churchill, drink and depression. Martin Luther King, bipolar. Florence Nightingale, depressive. Marie Curie, depressive. Charles Darwin, agoraphobic. Okay? I've got on and on and on. Did you know, by the way, that Lincoln and Charles Darwin were born on the same day? I don't mean the same date, I mean the, same, the very same day. It's one of my favourite facts. <laughs> so, <coughs> my point about that is that my mum... That was her, she was a winner because her objective was to raise a family and be happy. She did it. Okay? That's not my objective. I want to raise a family and I hope that they're happy and I'd like to be happy. But I don't think that's what life's about. I think life is about, life is a challenge and I think life is about setting yourself big challenges and trying to meet them. And I think it's trying to leave the world better than it was. I, you know? I th and I think there's a lot of people like that. But not everybody has to be like that. Um, there's nothing wrong with just... I hate the word just, actually. I hate that word, you know, I just want to do this. Um, Kevin Spacey, he's in the book An Innovation, because Netflix was such a big innovation. But he says this thing about, you know, he's visceral. I hate the comfort zone. And I think that's a good thing. So, this thing about, and, I, and I, when Charles Kennedy, Charles Kennedy's memorial's tomorrow in Southwark, and when he died, and people were doing tributes, and I was in a thing with Shirley Williams, and she said, if it wasn't for Charles's alcohol problem, he could have been a truly great politician. And I said, well, hold on a minute. You say he could have been a truly great politician, and you think he was a very, very good politician, but it's partly his problems and his understanding of them that made him the very good, empathetic, human politician that he was. So Martin Luther King, bipolar, there's a guy I know who's writing a book about Martin Luther King and his mental, history, mental health history, and his, his theory is, I mean, he's writing a thousand pages about this, but I'll give it you in a paragraph, is that the depressive part of Martin Luther King made him empathise with human suffering. The manic part gave him energy, charisma, the ability to hold people together, to inspire. So, you know, we're all different, but I just, I just think that some people have a desire to be different, and I think that's good. Right, last one. I'm sorry all those who didn't get it, and it's not for me to decide who gets this question. Sorry, it's... I'll tell you what, if you give me, one, give me three questions of one question. sentence. Okay. Three questions three of one questions. sentence each, yes. One, right, one microphone each. First, who's got the microphone? Here. Yeah, where? Here. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, you get the microphone. There's somebody up there, that's the last question. Yeah. 
So you, you touched upon it a little bit. One um, sentence, come on. <laughs> is there a difference between male and female winners from ah. all the interviews? That is the question I've been asked more than any other in the book. Not always by women, but mainly. Yeah, up the top. Um, why do you think British people don't like winners? <clears throat> yeah. And what advice would you give to Tiger Woods to make him a winner again? Ah. <laughs> Tiger Woods. <laughs> uh, he's a golfer. Um, Right. Oh, she's going. She's had enough. She's had enough. Uh, right, male, female. What was the one in the middle again? Why British don't like winners, yeah. Um, the male, female thing is really, really... You have to watch Aston Villa against Spurs, yeah? <coughs> ah, yeah. Off to the gym. Um, the male, female thing, I don't know. My daughter, who's a rampant, radical feminist, she says there aren't enough women on the cover. Okay? And lots of people said that. However, in my defence, Angela Merkel is my standout politician. Anna Winter is my profile on leadership. Lane Beachley. Any Aussies? Yeah, you know Lane Beachley? Lane Beachley, Australian surfer, is my resilience queen. Um, Arianna Huffington, Martha Lane Fox. I have got women in there, but admittedly there are more men. I don't know if women and men win in different ways. I think there's the obvious thing about maybe the pool gets narrower because of the children thing, and da da da. da. That's just down through history. Um, but funny enough, Tanny Gray Thompson, she gets angry if you say to her that she's disabled. I can't imagine what she would say if I said, you're disabled and a woman. <laughs> She's just an athlete. And she thinks, eats, sleeps. Athlete. She's an athlete. Um, so I think the answer is no. I don't, I'm not sure there is that big a difference. That's not, not in the people I've talked to. No. Why don't British people like... I mean, it's, it's a generalisation, but I do think we have this thing about... I think part of it's a good thing, but I think I actually do think a lot of it is about old hobby horse. Sheila have heard me bang on about it for years and years and years. I do think we still are a very class-based society. And we, we say... This, I mean, how is it possible? Here we are in an educational institution, too clever by half... Mm. Uh, gets above his station. You know? I think there's part of that. I think we just like to... We don't seem to mind, particularly in this era... I mean, every time I pick up a paper, and I, I mean, Prince Harry seems to be like, you know, the new kind of thing. We don't mind it when it's status-based. But we don't, there's something we don't like. And, and I see it a lot. I see a lot of... In football, I think there's a lot of snobbishness about football. We don't complain about Brad Pitt earning five million quid for a film, but, you know, thick footballers on 50 grand a week, you know. So I think part of it's a class thing. Um, the good part is actually people should deserve, you know, it shouldn't just be about, yeah, you go out and we should just bow down before you because you've won this and won that and the other. You've got to keep fighting for your reputation. I think that's the good part. 
But the bad part, I think, is, is like, you know, be in your place. Stay in your place. Um, tiger. I think it's sad. Uh, I watched Tiger Woods. I didn't get to interview him, but I watched him. And one of my favourite moments on a golf course was watching Tiger Woods. This, he, was, he was in his pomp at the time. And it was at Wentworth. And it was extraordinary, the intensity of concentration. And he was playing really, really well. And the crowd were just so loving him. And I could feel this, these kind of middle-aged men in baseball caps and polo sweaters and all the rest of it. Just, they were just longing for him just to look at them. And he just... There's two people he looked at. His caddy and the other player. Nobody else. It was almost like nobody else was there. And I think... It's back to the thing about... You know, the... the, the, the sorry, it's back to the thing. I was talking about this earlier in, in a media thing. The, the, the link between the physical and the mental and the link between what you do in your profession and what you do in your life. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that it all started to go wrong after that whole kind of ballyhoo and shenanigan with the women and da, da, da. I don't know if he's a sex addict or not. It's none of my business. But I think it's... Uh, and maybe, maybe it's just impossible to maintain that level of brilliance and intensity indefinitely. Uh, maybe, maybe, that'll, maybe that's what's happening with Mourinho, I don't know. So my advice to Tiger probably would be retire. Because I think there's something horrible about... I mean, I, I, I've, I've stopped running, okay? Now, I'm not an athlete by any manner of means. But I said to myself when I was doing, doing half marathons and, and marathons, I'm never, ever going to do a half marathon over two hours. Right, well, if I did one tomorrow, there's every danger it would take me longer than two hours. So and I cycle, and I box, and I'm really good <laughs> at hitting a pad. <coughs> okay? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. And, um, didn't get oh, by the way, one thing you promised me tonight, www.equalityfigure4mentalhealth.uk. Thank you. Thank you.